Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we welcome back in Brian Rubin, partner and leader of the Evershed Sutherland Securities Enforcement Practice and former counsel to the enforcement divisions at both the NASD, now FINRA, and the SEC, to discuss the current state of CCO liability and revisit the NSCP firm and CCO liability framework, to review its impact on the investment management industry nearly two years after its original publication. In our headline section, we look at recent data collected on the growth of the accredited investor population and review the SEC's denial of a Coinbase petition for digital asset rulemaking. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind, where we review how a recent Supreme Court hearing could signal the end of the SEC administrative proceeding process as we know it. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, in its review of the accredited investor definition, a report that's required under Dodd-Frank, the SEC considered the evolution of accredited investor and cited some statistics to help us better understand how the impact of the definition has changed over time. Specifically, from 1983, the number of households qualifying as accredited investors increased from 1.5 million to over 24 million, going from 1.8% of all U.S. households to 18.5% of U.S. households. If individual wealth and income thresholds had been increased proportionate to inflation since 1983, the net worth threshold would be raised from 1 million to over 3 million. The joint income threshold would be raised from 200,000 to over 600,000, and the joint income threshold would be increased from 300,000 to over 900,000. The report further stated that a meaningful portion of the increase in the number of accredited investors based on the wealth test is due to the inclusion of retirement assets in the wealth calculation. And finally, the number of initial filings of Form D increased by over six times since 2009. The the SEC went on to note that about one-third of form filing fill-ins are made by investment funds. While the report itself does not necessarily make recommendations, there is no doubt that given the evolution of the investor population over the last 30 plus years, the definition of accredited investor has certainly become far less exclusive than it once was. Um, or, again, depending on one's viewpoint, um, more inclusive uh, since that definition was first adopted back in 1983. For our next headline, the SEC recently denied a petition filed by Coinbase to, quote, propose and adopt rules to govern the regulation of securities that are offered and traded via digitally native methods, including potential rules to identify which digital assets are securities. In its denial letter, the SEC disagreed with the petitioner's contention that, quote, the application of existing securities statutes and regulations to crypto asset securities, issuers of those securities, and intermediaries areas in the trading, settlement, and custody of those securities is unworkable." The SEC went on to state that it is also, quote, 
engaged in many undertakings that relate to regulatory priorities extending well beyond crypto asset securities, end quote, and that by granting the petition would essentially, would, would essentially constrain the Commission's choices regarding the competing priorities, which the Commission declines to undertake at this time. As one might expect, Chair Gary Gensler supported that denial and went on to state that, quote, existing laws and regulations apply to the crypto securities markets. The SEC addresses the crypto securities markets through rulemaking. And finally, he said, quote, it is important to maintain commission discretion in setting its own rulemaking priorities, end quote. He went on to posit as well that crypto securities are not different from other securities and that the Howey test remains adequate to determine whether a crypto asset is a security. Further, he said that the commission's assessment of whether and how to alter the existing regulatory regime may be informed by the results of numerous initiatives underway that are applicable to crypto asset securities and intermediaries. By way of example, he pointed to the, uh, uh, recently the SEC adopted a proposed schedule for the custody of digital securities and that one firm has been approved to operate underneath that scheme. In a joint statement on the dissent side of the equation, Commissioners Hester Peirce and Mark Ueda disagreed with the SEC denial and encouraged market participants to, quote, posit specific rule changes, guidance, and exemptions that would form a useful basis for the crypto industry to continue its, de its development within the United States." End quote. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we're going to be talking about a subject matter that I think for many listeners to this show m might be the most important, if not certainly one of the most important topics that we get to talk about, and that is the issue of CCO liability, Chief Compliance Officer liability. For those that uh, have been listening to the podcast for some time, this is certainly a topic that has come up before and one that we have uh, delved into in a variety of different areas. but. But in particular, with the National Society of Compliance Professionals firm and CCO liability framework, which we covered about uh, almost two years ago, with an incredible uh, securities uh, with, with an incredible securities attorney out of Washington D.C., Mr. Brian Rubin. Thankfully, the wonderful and talented Brian Rubin is here to join uh, to join us again today to talk about this really important issue. And dive into how that, how the issue of CCO liability has continued to evolve over the past two years, and how the NSCP firm and CCO liability framework might continue to help teach us a little bit more about how CCOs can put themselves in the best position possible to protect themselves in the role that they serve inside their firms. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on on the show today. It, it's really great to have you back. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. And and I look good today, too, but the, the folks who are listening to the podcast can't tell. <laughs> they, they, I, I am sure they were all thinking it. However, I'm <laughs> sure they were all thinking it. No, it, it really is great to, to have you back on the show. And uh, the, the last time we connected on this subject matter, it, it was really not only to dive into the kind of broader issue, but also kind of focus on the development of the firm and CCO, firm and CCO liability framework. You know, now, two years later, um, almost, not only has the NSCP framework been you know updated and evolved, but, but in addition to that, we've continued to have uh, chief compliance officer liability cases that have come out. 
And we've had some statements, uh, I think, from uh, those folks at the SEC on the subject matter. I know some of which uh, we'll kind of dive into here today. Yeah. So both the SEC and FINRA have been speaking about the issue. And although they have not adopted the framework, I think we could take some credit for the fact that the industry is discussing the issue and the regulators are discussing the issue more frequently than they have in the past, and they've been doing a deeper dive into the issue. And I think part of it is because of the framework that we put out and because we've had these kinds of discussions. Yeah, no, I, that's a great point, and, and you're right. It, it, there, there has been an uptick, certainly, in some of the different statements that have been made, and and hopefully uh, a little bit of guidance that we can glean from some of those additional statements. Although, at the same time I say that, I also know that some statements have potentially led to maybe a little bit more confusion, and so we'll, we'll certainly talk about that today uh, as well. Um, one, one of those statements in particular, uh, came out uh, uh, about a couple months ago. On October 24th, SEC Enforcement Director Gerbeer Graywall gave a speech at the New York City Bar Association's Compliance Institute to address some of these concerns around Chief Compliance Officer liability. Following some of the principles that he had articulated previously, uh, that, that, that other SEC staff had, had previously articulated, he really stated that there were three situations where the commission would typically uh, uh, bring uh, a case against compliance personnel. Specifically, uh, number one, where compliance personnel affirmatively participated in the misconduct that was, uh, where compliance personnel affirmatively participated in misconduct unrelated to the compliance function, where the compliance personnel misled regulators. And the third one, where there was a wholesale failure by the compliance personnel to carry out their compliance responsibilities. I think today, because the, the 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 first two, I think, tend to be a bit more straightforward on the types of fact patterns where a CCO might be charged in those situations, we're, we're really going to focus on uh, our, our discussion on that third area of the wholesale failure to properly carry out their compliance responsibilities. And, you know, I, I would certainly contend that while the speech did provide some comfort to CCOs in some respects. I think, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, it also likely raised more questions than answers. And and so uh, I'm excited to kind of dive into that topic and and uh, and discuss what what some of those questions may be. Yeah, he did say a lot of things that I think would comfort should comfort compliance officers. But as you said, he did say a few things which I think caused questions in some folks' mind about whether the SEC was thinking about issues somewhat differently than the industry thinks about issues or than the regulators have previously thought about. So, so one of them is whether compliance officers are really the front line of defense or whether they sort of sit somewhere else. He made a statement saying that compliance professionals, consultants, attorneys, accountants, and others in this space serve as, quote, the first lines of defense against misconduct, unquote. And I, I think traditionally, we haven't viewed it that way. So what are your thoughts about that, Patrick? Yeah, I, I would tend, I think, to slightly uh, uh, take a, a different perspective than than Mr. Graywall and, and agree with you that I think traditionally 
the way most of the time I think about compliance, it's not that it's uh, the frontline supervision. I, I do think that compliance, just in as much as they are another person at the firm who should engage in practice compliance, right? I we like to talk about how you know compliance is a uh, as a functional area inside a firm may have dedicated professionals uh, uh, that 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 live within it, but but everybody at the firm should practice compliance, and in fact, there should always be a certain level of business level supervision or business management supervision that's also being applied to the various business functions and operational functions inside of the firm. And then that way, compliance isn't essentially watching itself, <laughs> right? Or like where, where compliance then can do a good job of then providing supervision over the the supervision that's being provided by, by the business and the, uh, the supervision that's being provided over operations and other related items inside of that firm. If compliance is on the front lines, then again, I think that's a slightly different ask than what most folks would would appreciate, where everybody inside a firm should actually be practicing good compliance. Um, right. Yeah, and I think traditionally the the business units who actually interact, for example, with customers are the first line of defense, and then compliance and risk are the second line traditionally, and then the audit function is the third line. So right. it was it was confusing that he talked about it as being the first line of defense because. Compliance isn't there directly engaging with customers, for example. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's right. He he also talked about how compliance professionals and others that that are not necessarily, I guess, uh, like in the business chain. You know, he 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 talked about how they they are the ones that can work with firms to implement effective policies and procedures and to ensure those firms comply with their legal obligations on the front end. Do, do you think that that's a responsibility for compliance, for compliance officers? Or maybe a different way to frame that would be, are, are compliance officers responsible for implementing and executing policies and procedures? Or would you say their function is more to provide advice around those policies and procedures? I would say, and I think most folks in the industry would say, and regulators have in fact said that the senior management is ultimately responsible for supervision and for compliance, and compliance really serves as an advisory role. Um, a number of former SEC officials have said that uh, FINRA has a rule which specifically says that CCOs are advisors and they're advising the firm. And you know the the reality is that compliance doesn't have control over the purse string. They're, they don't have the resources. They don't hire or fire other than within the compliance department. And senior management is ultimately responsible for the entire firm. And then they delegate certain functions, including compliance. So yeah, I would say that compliance really has the advisory role ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has felt like, uh, just to, to build on that, even though I agree with you that the compliance officer's primary role has been, or I, I believe should be to provide advice, 
on it. It, it feels like, especially these days and with the you know deluge of, of new rules and regulations, like compliance officers are also getting pulled into a lot of different directions. And probably there's some scope creep into a lot of other areas, unfortunately, that, that's occurring there. So I, I would definitely agree that, un unfortunately, again, I think based on Director Graywall's comments, I don't know how much that, that would align with the traditional compliance function. Yeah, and going to the scope creep that you talked about, one of the things that he discussed, and it's certainly important, that compliance folks know what's happening within the business, but it, it seems like he took it beyond that in at least part of his speech because he said that compliance has to really engage with personnel in the business, different business units uh, to learn about their activities, strategies, risks, financial incentives, counterparties, sources of revenue and profits. And he said that in order for compliance to discharge their duties, they really had to be proactive and basically understand everything, to use the phrase from the movie, everything everywhere all at once at their firms. How do you view that? Is that even possible? Yeah, there is quite a bit, quite a bit to unpack there, I, I, I think. I mean, the number of areas now that I would say a CCO based on the way the current rules are written under the Advisors Act, what might, you know, appear to have to be an ex a subject matter expert in so many different areas, it, it's starting to look like we're, you know, creating some kind of like Frankenstein's monster of subject matter experts in so many different fields in order to, uh, according to Mr. Graywall, to be able to capably perform the function while I would certainly agree that for, uh, you know, I think really good compliance uh, does take, generally speaking, more of a proactive than a reactive role. Um, I don't think it would be possible, as you describe, and, and kind of as the name of the movie would suggest, to be everything, everywhere, all at once inside of your firms. I think we have to be able to rely on the other business line personnel who are uh, realistically and, and should be receiving really good training and education about their functions and how the impact of compliance on it, as well as their managers and the other folks that are serving in a management or supervision function so that there's proper internal governance and internal controls and structures that allow for escalation of issues if and when they occur and allow, hopefully, Think of it as like many different agents, right? Of like the folks that are out there that can identify where there might be problems or challenges or issues occurring that relate to the compliance program. And ultimately then they know to involve compliance in that situation and the CCO and their team or the compliance department can help address whatever legitimate uh, uh, concerns and help mitigate the issue and address it in time, remediate any issues that, that are occurring. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but certainly that, that would be, I think, uh, a more suitable approach there. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I mean, management delegates and there are subject matter experts at firms that deal with technical issues like CISOs, like FinOps, heads of sale, 
product, whatever it is. And it's not the job of compliance to know everything that is happening at firms. There are risk issues, obviously, and monitoring and surveillance of different types of functions. But the CCO is not in charge of everything that's happening at the firm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would be... Um... You know, the, the other part is chief compliance officers, like so many uh, different uh, market participants and other registrants in the space, just like even, you know, agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission are limited by uh, resources, right, and staffing. And so the idea that you could have essentially compliance, again, being kind of everything to everyone in every business unit all of the time and be proactively serving in that capacity. I don't know how realistic that that might be. Another, another thing that came out that I found, well, I, again, it has been something that I would even say even frequently, like when we talked about this, you know, a couple of years ago, that, that's tough to define in, in that I think we're still really searching for an answer on, but but would love to hear your thoughts. You know what? What is a wholesale failure? What and, and what does it mean to when there's a wholesale fail, a wholesale failure by the compliance personnel, right, to carry out their compliance responsibilities? Uh, you know, I don't really think Director Graywall's speech really defined that, but I would be interested to hear if, based on other, you know, on on prior enforcement actions, you know, if you've been able to glean out what what that you know phrase of art means. I have not, um, and I guess that's why they pay us the big bucks to try to figure that out. I mean, the the problem is you can find identical types of cases where there is not a compliance officer charged, and then other cases where a compliance officer is charged, and you don't know the difference. There are cases which are huge, which the SEC says are critically important, and compliance officers are not charged there. And just by way of example, in that same speech, Director Graywall talked about the off-channel communications cases. And at that point, they had charged 40 firms and the civil monetary penalties were over $1.5 billion. So those were eye-popping penalties. And one might think, well, those sound like wholesale failures. The firms didn't retain what they were supposed to retain, right. but CCOs weren't charged. And I think that's right that CCOs shouldn't be charged because they're not ultimately responsible for that kind of conduct. And then in the Reg BI space, I think there may be one case where a CCO has been charged, where a firm had inadequate policies and procedures. But then there are over a dozen other cases where firms had inadequate policies and procedures and CCOs weren't charged. So I, I, unfortunately, I don't think the phrase wholesale failure helps anybody at all. It just leads to more questions. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why we developed a framework, right? Right. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm so glad that you brought up those cases about the off-channel business communications, because if I'm remembering correctly, like one of the key things, at least I remember in that initial release back in September of 2022, that was so important was they talked about how some of the people, including those that were recidivists in those situations, were the business 
level leaders and management and other business line supervisors of their personnel who had engaged in that activity, which kind of goes back to that one of those initial points that we made that like compliance probably shouldn't be the the first line of defense. There's often going to be people who are, as you talked about, right, like communicating with clients and investors and um, uh, again, communicating with each other as it relates to the client servicing of accounts and, and other related advisory activities. And those persons need to make sure that they're practicing good compliance yeah. uh, to kind of the, the broader broader point there. Yeah, that, that's a great point. They are the first line of defense. They're the ones who are communicating off channel with either customers or counterparties um, about business and they're not doing what they were supposed to be doing, even though I think all of the firms or the vast majority of the firms had specific policies and procedures saying thou shalt not use, in effect, off-channel communications. Right, right. So I'm also kind of interested because, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, Graywall has talked about the, you know, examples of CCOs being charged for kind of purely compliance-related failures. And in fact, one of those uh, examples that he gave, where he, he actually, he, uh, a quote from him says that the, the commission charged the CCO of a registered investment advisor who was responsible for implementing and adopting the firm's compliance policies and procedures. But in reality, I think that case itself was was really more related to somebody that served in in they, they were wearing multiple leadership hats at, at the firm can i think that's the the two-point case can, can you talk about that case a little bit yeah so it was odd that he cited that case as an example of here's a really good case where he charged the cco because in fact in that case he was wearing multiple hats he wasn't just the CCO. He was the founder of the firm. He was the sole owner of the firm and the shareholder of the firm. And he was the CEO. And he was, according to the order, the only individual responsible for implementing and developing compliance policies and procedures and the code of ethics. And he was charged because he was responsible for implementing the policies and procedures. And again, implementing sounds like a business function. It doesn't sound like an advisory function. So, so in my mind, at any rate, it didn't make sense that he said, here's a great case where he charged a CCO for failing to act as a CCO should be acting because this guy was, in effect, the firm. And right. we often talk about compliance cases where people wear multiple hats, and those cases are different from cases where somebody just is, at, is acting in a compliance function and is charged for acting in that compliance function. Yeah. Are there other cases that, that you can think about, Patrick, or the, that we've talked about before, dealing with CCOs being charged for the compliance function or on their face? That's what they deal with at any rate. Yeah, no, that's a good uh, a, a good question. I, we actually got to dive into this topic a little bit at the uh, at the NSCP National Compliance Conference back in October, where we we talked about. Um, the Hamilton case. So the, the Hamilton case was settled. Uh, and that's different from Hamilton the musical, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. For those clear. keeping score at home, that's right. Uh, thank you. Good. Good clarification here. But in June of 2022, the SEC settled a case where they found that Hamilton uh, Investment Council had failed to adopt and implement reasonable 
written policies and procedures and that the CCO had aided and abetted and caused those violations. The, the CCO, though, in that case, again, was a, a principal of, of Hamilton, and he had allegedly failed to, one, make sufficient changes to the design and implementation of the firm's compliance program, and two, to take sufficient steps when he became aware of the outside business activities or OBAs of another investment advisor representative, including having or kind of you know in, instructing that IAR to make sure that they were completing and submitting the proper reporting uh, as related to that outside business activity, which unfortunately in Hamilton the IAR did not. And so the the interesting part is that the, the order doesn't do a great job of really, I think, describing a lot of the relevant facts there. Because if you look at the SEC complaint, the IAR was also a co-owner, principal, and managing member of the registered investment advisor. And furthermore, that he had committed fraud by misappropriating customer funds for his personal use. And so, it just it's still, even though you've got the CCO and there are specific things that they're alleging that they failed to do, it's unclear how maybe some of uh, the actions that were involved by this other IAR, what did you know, the, the, how that impacted the analysis to ultimately bring the claim against the chief compliance officer. I don't know if you, what, what do you think about? Yeah, the- so on it, so there were two two things. One was the settled order against the firm and the CCO, and then separately there was the complaint against the head of the firm. So on its face, the settled order, if you look at it, you might say, well, the CCO failed to take sufficient changes, failed to make sufficient changes to the firm's compliance program. Sure, maybe that's a compliance function and he should be charged. And then the other issue was he didn't deal properly with this unnamed IAR. And you might say, well, maybe that's not a compliance function. That could be more of a supervision function. But you're right. Once you drill down and you say, there's this other complaint out there, and it actually deals with the IAR, but he's the co-owner, principal, and managing member, you then question, well, what could the CCO have done? Did he have the ability, authority to do all of these things that he should have done that the settled order alluded to? And in my mind, there's questions about that. So the the order, as you said, said that he was a principal, the CCO was a principal. But what does that mean? What authority did he actually have given that the head of the firm, the owner of the firm was a bad guy? What could the CCO have done as principal? And then the other questions relate to sort of normal supervision type functions that you might think about. Did the CCO have the responsibility, ability, or authority to affect the IAR's conduct? Could he have he instructed, could he have instructed the IAR to do anything? Or would the IAR who owns the firm said, you know, I don't care what you're saying, I own the firm, and by the way, I'm committing this fraud, which he probably wouldn't have said. And would the CCO have had the ability to design and implement a a better compliance program given that the head of the firm, the owner of the firm, was out there committing fraud? Big questions. You know, I, I don't know the answer here. I don't know why the case was settled the way it was. And I don't know why the order didn't explain these additional facts. Yeah, you you really are speaking to the very uh, cockles of my compliance nerd heart there, Brian, as you're talking about, because what I heard, particularly at the end of that, and and that I think is so important for our listeners um, who may not 
uh, yet be uh, as familiar uh, with the NSCP firm and CCO liability framework. But what I heard at the end of that was really the beginnings of a lot of the very reasons why we wanted to create the firm and CCO liability framework. That gets back to really like the the basis for why we did that, and it was to we the initial framework came out in in kind of early 2022, and then the subsequent version came out the following year in February 2023, and the NSCP issued that framework to one help alleviate the uncertainty faced by compliance officers two to provide a framework that aligns with statements made by the sec and finra leadership and other industry professionals and three to help promote investor protection and market integrity and what the with regard to kind of evaluating potential cco liability what the framework does is it really sets forth a number of questions that 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 we think are super helpful that should be considered by regulators. And where, it's not just because we drafted them. They're, they're right, super helpful of regardless. Of, of course not. That's exactly right. I want to be very objective, but very objective about this. But that these questions, they strike at the heart of what what are some of those other mitigating factors that you were questioning, right, in looking at the Hamilton case there, right? You talked about authority, you talked about actual responsibility, you talked about uh, the IAR's conduct kind of impacting that and whether they were going to be able to, to design, properly design and implement the compliance program. In the same way, the firm and CCO liability framework developed by the NSCP does a really good job of breaking down what what are some of the questions that could mitigate against find a finding of CCO liability. And so on the firm management side, right, it's did firm management fail to delegate to the CCO actual responsibility, ability, or authority to affect the violative conduct? Did the firm management fail to provide sufficient support? Uh, including adequate resources for the CCO to affect the violative conduct? Did firm management have the opportunity to review the policies and procedures related to the violative conduct? And did firm management fail to respond appropriately to the violative conduct after becoming aware of it through the CCO or otherwise? On the flip side, the CCO also should be taking some actions here that that hopefully could help um, mitigate a finding of, of liability against them, which would include things like, did, did the CCO properly escalate the issue or violative conduct to firm management through a risk assessment, annual review, CEO certification meeting or report, or otherwise? Uh, did the CCO consult with legal counsel, either in-house or external, and or securities compliance experts or consultants, and act consistently with the advice provided? Did the CCO reasonably rely on information from others in the firm or firm systems? Did the CCO otherwise act in good faith to affect the violative conduct? And finally, did the CCO act reasonably? Just, I mean, in the broader general sense, but, but still violative conduct occurred uh, uh, by the firm and and at the firm, and in going through those kind of you know the the, the nine famous questions in the uh, firm and CCO liability framework, there just just famous to us, Patrick. Yeah, Patrick, right. Yeah, they've yeah. Caught on yet. I, I should I should probably I should probably limit that a, a little bit, but but nonetheless, if you're looking at those nine questions, 
How do you think, Brian, the SEC, could the SEC have applied those questions in the NSCP framework to the Hamilton case? Yes, I think they could have. And one of the things that I do in my practice is if we put in a well submission or a white paper to, say, the SEC or FINRA, I've actually gone through some of these issues and some of these questions to make the case that it's not appropriate to charge my clients where it's not appropriate. And I, I think it is a helpful framework. So, for example, in the case that we just talked about, I won't go through all nine of the great questions, but just a, a couple of the questions. So, did firm management fail to delegate to the CCO actual responsibility, ability, or authority to affect the vial of conduct? That was the first one that you, that you mentioned. So, given that the SEC had a separate complaint against the head owner of the firm, it appears unlikely that the CCO had adequate responsibility to affect the IAR's conduct because he was involved with fraud. He was committing fraud out there, and the, C, the, the head of the firm wouldn't have said, hey, you have the ability to stop me from committing fraud, which you don't know anything about. Uh, the, the next question will do a couple from each. Did firm management fail to respond appropriately to the violative conduct after becoming aware of it? So again, given that firm management was committing fraud, the head of the firm was aware that he was committing fraud, and you know he didn't appropriately respond. So, it doesn't make sense the, the way the SEC sort of drew these cases together and brought the first settled case. With regard to the CCO's conduct, did the CCO escalate the issue or the vial of conduct to firm management? So, you know, he escalated the issue to firm management by instructing the RIA who was the managing member of the firm, to complete and submit the OBA form, but the IAR didn't do it, and presumably he didn't do it because he was busy committing fraud and didn't want to indicate that he was doing he didn't that. Want to give that. He didn't want yeah. to give that away, Brian. Exactly. I mean, yeah, right. What outside activity are you doing committing fraud? <laughs> Um, then the next one, did the CCO act reasonably, but the violative conduct still occurred? So again, given the, the disparate roles between the CCO and the head of the firm, you know, there, there's an argument that the CCO did act reasonably. Um, there's no indication that he knew about the fraud or that he had more of an ability to control the head of the firm. So yeah. I, I think had the SEC thought about these questions or had defense attorney made these arguments on behalf of the CCO, the case might have been different. Yeah. Well, and certainly going through that analysis would would absolutely, I think, help color the situation to, to really dig, dig in on whether a charge of CCO liability was merited in that situation. But I also think, too, like just even looking in the future a little bit, and then actually I'd, I'd love to get your broader thoughts on, on the issue, just given how, how close you you are to it in some cases. But, but that, you know, for future cases where a charge of CCO liability is included, it's helpful to also have some of the facts that might that might relate to some of these different questions in those final orders because then that does help i mean look for the the listeners of this podcast it's probably a pretty friendly audience right i mean like there's a lot of legal and compliance nerds on this podcast right now who are probably the very people who are are 
are trying to do the right thing and and continue to really run strong, good compliance programs um, or consult with their clients about running really good, uh, uh, strong compliance programs. But yet, sometimes when those orders come out and we don't have some of those different facts, Right. In the absence of facts, people are going to assume things and or make uh, wrongful interpretations of things. And that's where I think some of the anxiety and fear and confusion can come from. Um, And so, you know, I I would just turn to you and say, you know, based on Director Graywall's kind of, you know, remarks that he had back in October and kind of based on what's been happening over the past couple of years, including with things like the Hamilton case, you know, where do you see the issue of CCO liability going? uh, Where is it now? And I guess, where do you see it going in the future? Or maybe another question would be, how would you like it or how best do you think it could evolve into the future? That's a lot of questions. So I I think that the regulators have said the right thing. I mean, Director Graywall in his speech acknowledging the challenging work that compliance have, and he said the SEC has no interest in pursuing enforcement actions against compliance personnel who undertake responsibility in good faith and based on reasonable inquiry. I think it's natural that people in our audience have a fear that they do have targets on their backs. And and among the reasons are when there are examinations and sometimes when there, there are investigations, they are the focal point. They are the ones dealing directly with the regulators or they are the ones gathering the information for the regulators. When there are exams and investigations, they often focus on policies and procedures which compliance officers draft or help draft. And they're often called in to testify because they know a lot about everything at the firm. Maybe not everything, but they know a lot about a lot at the firm. So it's natural that the regulators want to call in the CCOs. So given all of that, the CCOs say and know, gosh, there's a spotlight on me. I have uh, the attention of the regulator, so I may have a target on my back. And the problem with orders, as you were talking about, if they're not clear and if they don't address you know, some of the things that we focused on in the NSCP framework, there are a lot of questions. Would I be charged for the same kind of conduct? Why was that person charged? From the regulator's perspective, the settlements are negotiated and maybe some of the bad language is knocked out. And I certainly would do that on behalf of my clients. But you do want an order that is clear. So a third party sitting there reading it would say, aha, I understand what happened and I understand why a CCO was charged here, but a CCO wasn't charged in this case. Um, The orders are important to set forth lessons for the compliance community. Don't do this or you'll be sanctioned. And when we have a case like Hamilton, where there's a complaint that suggests something else was going on, that leads to a lot of confusion in the industry and a lot of people thinking, are the regulators really being upfront here? Yeah. Amazing job. I think I asked you like seven questions and somehow you were able <laughs> I to only success- answered one. I think. You, were, you were able to successfully navigate all seven in the course of those fantastic <laughs> remarks. So well done. No, Brian, I, I, I greatly appreciate your 
insights in this area. And, and thank you so much for for coming on the show today um, to talk about that. I'll 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 end not not with another technical question, but just with one maybe slightly more fun question, which is you know we're coming up on the end of the year. And um, as you think about going into the holiday season, what's what's one thing? I don't know if you're uh, if you've got a sweet tooth or not, but but maybe what's what's one thing that you like to uh, indulge with? You know, over over the holidays, maybe it's a you know, like you know, for for me, for instance, like I love that like peppermint bark stuff, right? Like I could I could I could eat a whole sleeve of that <laughs> probably. But but I don't know. Is there something that you're really looking forward to kind of indulging uh, with either a sweet tooth or something like that over the holidays? So if I could change it somewhat uh, in terms of indulging, I'm older than you. My kids are older than you. They're going to be coming back from college. So uh, in, indulging in them and with them in, in various things, including eating a bunch of different types of food. That sounds fantastic. And um, as I like to tell a lot of folks that have children that are older than mine, uh, th thank you for giving me hope. <laughs> we, we You're just, sleeping again through the night, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And, and uh, lo lo long story short, I found out uh, uh, the destructive nature of rubber toys when they've been flushed uh, uh, in your uh, uh, plumbing system. It's better than siblings being flushed. <laughs> fair. Truth be told, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> Well, Brian, thank you again so much for uh, for coming on the show today and um, for talking about such an important issue uh, that's impacting our industry. And look look forward to having you back here on the pod at some point down the road. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you for making compliance interesting and fun. <laughs> We're doing our best, that's for sure. <laughs> As we move into the final segment of today's show, we're going to be focusing on another installment of What's On My Mind. For some of those new listeners at home, this is the part of the show where we like to take a look at a nuanced uh, compliance issue happening in the investment management space and provide a sophisticated or editorial take on the happenings uh, related to that specific issue and really dive into some of the issues that, that are involved. The only difference with today's What's On My Mind, however, is the fact that we have a very special guest to join us. Normally, when we do the What's On My Mind, um, I'll do uh, the, uh, the editorial look on my own, but I thought with our special guest, Brian Rubin, uh, who has such significant experience and expertise in the SEC enforcement space, who better to join us to talk about some of the uh, happenings in the SEC enforcement front, most notably the recent U.S. Supreme Court case, which includes a an item that earlier this quarter, back at the end of November, the U.S. Supreme Court um, heard arguments on whether the SEC actually has the power to pursue defendants in its own in-house tribunals rather than in federal court. The outcome of this case could significantly impact how the SEC and other U.S. federal agencies enforce regulations. Brian, would love to get your thoughts. What's 
actually going on here and what potentially could be the impact uh, to the investment management industry and compliance officers and legal practitioners working in this space alike. Well, Patrick, I knew that was on your mind. So, in anticipation of that, I spent more than two hours listening to the Supreme Court oral argument on the case. And it was actually the longest oral argument this term. And it was pretty interesting, I think, or at least you're it the, should be. You're, you're the one. You're the one download <laughs> that had the whole thing. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> Fantastic. It should be interesting for the folks listening. So, for many years, when the SEC litigated against regulated entities, they could bring a case either in federal court or before an SEC administrative law judge in an administrative proceeding. So, in this case, the SEC alleged that George Jarkazi, who was 46 and he ran two hedge funds through an unregistered Texas-based investment advisor, they alleged that he misrepresented the value of the funds through incorrect valuations and the fund secured over 100 investors and managed over $20 million in assets. They filed an administrative proceeding in front of an ALJ and following the administrative hearing, the ALJ found that he committed fraud. They, he ordered him to pay $300,000 in penalties and disgorge nearly $700,000 of ill-gotten profits. And the way the administrative proceedings work is after an ALJ hearing, you can then appeal to the full commission, the SEC commissioners, and he did that and he lost again. He then appealed to the Federal Court of Appeals and to the shock of many people in the industry and in the securities bar, he was successful. The Fifth Circuit vacated that decision, finding that the SEC violated the Constitution with regard to three separate issues. So, first, the Fifth Circuit found that Congress flouted the Seventh Amendment, which reads in part that in suits at common law where the value of the controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved. Here, the SEC was seeking civil penalties through an administrative proceeding instead of allowing a jury in federal court to hear the case. And relying on Supreme Court precedent, the Fifth Circuit looked at whether the claims in action, quote, arise at common law under the Seventh Amendment. And the key factors that they looked at were whether Congress created a new cause of action and rem remedies that were previously unknown under common law and whether a jury trial would effectively dismantle the statutory scheme or impede swift resolution of the claims created by the statute. The Fifth Circuit determined that fraud claims existed under common law and that a civil penalty was a type of remedy under common law that could be enforced in courts. Therefore, they found that the right of a jury trial applied to the penalties action brought by the SEC. And even though there were equitable components involved in the case, they didn't invalidate the right to a jury trial. And the court also found that the SEC claims were not the type of claims that could properly be assigned to agency adjudication under what's called the public rights doctrine, because they found that securities fraud claims aren't new, that such claims existed at common law.
And that's the issue that the Supreme Court focused on for the vast majority of the time during the November 29th oral argument. The Fifth Circuit also looked at two other issues. They found that Congress unconstitutionally delegated legislative power to the SEC when it gave it full discretion to choose whether to bring actions in an Article Three court or before an ALJ. And I won't get into the details of that because the Supreme Court didn't really focus much on that. And then finally, the Fifth Circuit ruled that Congress violated the separation of powers, finding that the statutorial removal protections provided to SEC ALJs are unconstitutional. They can only be removed for good cause by the Merits System Protection Board, whose members in turn can only be removed by the president for cause. So the ALJs are basically shielded from removal by the SEC. The Supreme Court, as we talked about, had oral arguments for more than two hours. And the Supreme Court focused almost exclusively on that one issue, whether the Seventh Amendment bars the SEC from imposing monetary penalties in administrative proceedings without the defendant having a right to a jury trial. Um, Mr. Jarkizy argued that his Seventh Amendment rights were violated because the SEC chose to prosecute before an ALJ rather than a federal court where he would have been entitled to a jury of his peers. They, the, the court focused on a 1977 Supreme Court case called Atlas Roofing. And in that case, the court found that Congress had the power to give an executive agency authority to adjudicate violations without violating the Seventh Amendment. And in that case, they upheld OSHA OSHA's ability to bring non-jury administrative proceedings and impose civil penalties for workplace hazards. In oral arguments, the government said that Congress adopted a comprehensive regulatory regime that includes ALJs and that they had the ability to assess different remedies, including things like disgorgement or damages or bars or uh, deregistration, civil penalties, all of those things they said were not found in common law. They also said that Congress didn't, didn't simply federalize common law fraud. Instead, they argued like with OSHA, the government established a comprehensive enforcement regime with new causes of action and remedies that were distinct from the common law. So the government argued that this really wasn't a suit at common law. And unlike a private plaintiff suit for common law fraud, the SEC was seeking to vindicate rights held by the public at large, which bottom line is the right to fair and honest financial markets. So they said it's a different kind of action. The respondents argued that Atlas Roofing isn't dispositive because OSHA sought to enforce new statutory obligations markedly distinct from those arriving under the common law. And they argued that the SEC's enforcement action serves basically the same purpose as common law fraud actions. So that's, that's what the heart of the issue is. And based on the, the questioning from the court, it sounded like 
the court is going to find that the SEC's regime does violate the Constitution. Um, there were a number of questions from the more conservative justices, and that is where it appears that it's going. And, you know, I'm not an expert in reading the court or reading financial markets or reading anything else, frankly. But based on the number of questions, the types of questions and articles that have been written, that appears to be where it's going. And the case is interesting because it also has implications for other agencies. So in the oral argument, they discussed the fact that there are about two dozen agencies that also impose civil penalties through administrative court proceedings. So all of those may be impacted, such as the EPA, uh, FERC, which regulates the, the energy markets, and also the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. So what may happen is the court could invalidate the scheme. It's possible that the SEC could allow defendants slash respondents to choose whether they want to litigate administratively, which is cheaper and faster for respondents or go to court. So that might be an out. Another way to think about it is the SEC could decide that certain types of actions could be brought administratively, but um, certain ones like fraud would have to be brought in court. Or it's also possible that Congress might have to act and uh, enact new legislation. And Patrick, the other thing I want to mention is that there's going to be another case that the Supreme Court is going to be heard that will also have huge implications in the securities uh, markets. Even though that case itself doesn't deal with the SEC, the court is going to be looking at the longstanding practice of federal courts giving deference to federal agencies, and that's the Loper Bright Enterprises case. Um, so both of these cases we'll probably hear about in May or so of next year when the Supreme Court hands down most of its more interesting and controversial decisions, and that could upend uh, the entire securities enforcement uh, regime that we know about. Yeah, ha has the uh, have the oral arguments for the second case there that you referenced, have they been heard yet or are those still? Not yet. Not yet. That's going to be heard, I think, in January. Okay. That is excellent. That is excellent information. And yeah, I think it's really interesting when you compare this case with regard to the SEC and its enforcement powers. But as you indicate, I'm sure many legal experts uh, uh, would uh, uh, agree that their decision here and, this, and, and, and on the scope of the SEC's powers are going to have very broad consequences for other federal agencies out there that also pursue some of those same types of enforcement claims internally uh, versus, again, going through the federal court system. So, Yeah, uh, and, and even though FINRA isn't part of the federal government, there's also a court challenge dealing with the way they bring enforcement cases in the D.C. Circuit has been hearing issues related to that. So that scheme could also be upended. Man, it's almost like this tiny what's on my mind summary update on SEC enforcement. It sounds like we may have an entire new show idea for at some point here in 2024. But uh, yeah, your mind is a dangerous thing, Patrick. You should be <laughs> careful about what you think about. <laughs> Very, that's a fair point, Brian. Fair, fair point. Well, again, as we said during the, the interview section on CCO liability, uh, thank you so, so much for being 
very generous with your time to help break down what are some very complicated issues, both as it relates to Chief Compliance Officer liability and certainly here as it relates to the broad powers uh, associated with a, with federal agencies, more specifically with the SEC. So thank you for that, Brian. Um, uh, a very happy holidays to you and your family and look forward to having you uh, uh, here back on the show at some point in 2024. Thanks. Happy holiday to you and yours. And I always appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Brian Rubin, for providing his keen insights on the issue of CCO liability and the significant impact of the NSCP firm and CCO liability framework. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 